so glad you're here. And I don't know if you heard, this is like Oprah today. Everybody's getting a free car if you came to 1130. <laughs> or is it a donut hole? I can't remember. No, it's, it's, it's really good to have you. If you're a guest, my name's Mark, one of the pastors. Really glad that you're here. So this has been fun to ask this question throughout the week, and there's been like two people, no, actually maybe about eight people are watching this. Has, has, has anybody heard about, watched any part of The Crown? It's a new TV show. Okay, there's some crown love. Okay, good. So it's the story about Queen Elizabeth II, the reigning queen of England, and there's this particular episode that caught my attention as Lori and I were watching it this past week. It's about her coronation. So there's a wonderful flashback where it goes back to when she's a little girl watching her dad put on the crown. So her uncle abdicated the throne, and so it's like this new thing. His, her dad never grew up thinking he was going to be the king because he had an older brother. And so it's this picture of little Elizabeth looking at her dad, putting on the crown, and just seeing that. Now you just kind of move forward, and it's her turn. She's in Buckingham Palace in the living quarters, and the servant, the valet as they call him, comes in with this big box and unveils the crown, gives it to her. It's like heavy. And she puts it on her head, and it's like wobbly, and she's trying to just make sure it fits right and that she could gracefully wear the crown well on this big day, her coronation day. So after kind of trying it for a while, she gives it back to the servant, and she says this classic line, do you suppose I could borrow it for a while? And he says, borrow it, ma'am. From whom? If it's not yours, then whose is it? This is a great line. And it reminds me of Genesis 3. Because in Genesis 3, we meet up with Adam and Eve who say to God, God, do you suppose we could borrow your crown just for a while. And what we find out is wearing God's crown, even for a short while, is a deadly game. And the Bible makes this clear. Pride and what goes before it, pride leads to what? The fall. Pride goes before destruction, the fall. And so wearing it, even for a short while, bit is a deadly charade. That's what we're going to look at. So grab your Bible. Genesis 3 is where we're at. And before we dig into verses 1 through 5 in the temptation account, I want you to look at this slide that summarizes Tim Mackey's video, which his presentation two weeks ago, if you haven't seen it, you really ought to check it out as we begin this series of the storyline going through the whole book of the Bible. Because in one message, he does the whole Bible and now I'm going to do one slide to do his whole message, okay? So remember what he said? The storyline of the Bible goes from creation to new creation. Genesis 1, creation. Genesis, uh, Revelation 22, new creation. There's a fallout. That's Genesis 3 through 11. That's the section we're in today. We're in this downward spiral called the fallout. And then in the midst of it, right after the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, God calls Abram. He says, I want to bless you to bless all the families of the world. And through Abraham and his descendants, the Israelites, comes the promised Savior, Jesus. And through his death and resurrection, we have the way in, the gateway. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And that's the new creation in this world. And then when he comes back and sets up, the new heaven right here on the new earth. 
So we get to Genesis 3, and we're right at this fallout part. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So this is a temptation account. And what we, we need to see here is we're moving from the very good beginning where God is ruling over all things and created Adam and Eve to rule under him over the whole world, right? And as long as they trusted God for all of life, they had this beautiful, beautiful existence. So enter the serpent. The serpent, we find out from scriptures, like in Revelation 12 and 20, Ezekiel 7, very likely Isaiah 14, is a fallen angel. So angels are spirits. They don't have corporal bodies, physical bodies, but often in the scriptures we find them showing up and manifesting their presence through a human form, or in this case, uh, the form of a serpent. So the question here in the text is not a zoological, like, did snakes walk and talk back in the <laughs> early days? No, that's not what this is doing. Remember, this is, this is a salvation history, not a science manual textbook. So he's described Satan as, Satan, that word, by the way, means adversary. He's our adversary. He's God's adversary. This fallen angel who wanted to be like God, was jealous of all the glory attributed and given to God, that he leads a rebellion with other angels to go against God and his purposes. He's the adversary. He's a roaring lion, Peter says, seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5.8. Jesus calls him a thief. He says in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. And at the heart of the temptation is the word of God. And I want us to notice that. At the heart of what's going on is the word of God. So what happens first? He questions the word. Did God really say? Then he twists God's word, right? He says, did God really say that you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? And right there, he is sowing seeds of doubt. Is God good? Is he holding back? Is his word true, really? Is this really true? Can you trust him? Eve adds to the word of God. She quickly corrects him and says, no, he didn't say that. He said, we just can't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because the day when you touch it, well, God didn't say anything about touching it. She adds to the word of God. Then he flat out contradicts it. He says, you will not die. The fact is, you're going to be like God. And he's holding back. You're going to know the difference. You're going to have all wisdom. You're going to be like God. You're going to know good and evil. And he, he does what he does. Jesus said this about the devil in John 8, 44. When he lies, he speaks his na native language, for he's a liar and the father of all lies. And his deadly temptations are mixed with truth in the lie. They are not going to be like God. 
by seizing God's throne and assuming self-rule. And they're going to quickly find that out. They are going to know the difference between good and evil in, in a way that they never imagined. Maybe they thought it was going to be an intellectual knowing and it became a visceral in their own being knowing because evil now existed within them. And so John tells us, I mean, Moses tells us here in verse 6 that it all goes bad in one careless moment. Verse 6, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. See, up until verse 6, there's temptation but no sin. That's really important. Sin does not equal temptation. You can be tempted, and it could be really strong, but you haven't sinned. You go, well, wait a minute. Doesn't, God, doesn't Jesus say if you've lusted in your heart over, over a woman, you've, you've actually committed adultery if you're a married man? So that's Satan. Actually, the temptation happened before you lusted and desired to have that woman. So you noticed the woman. That was the temptation. Are you going to take that in in a step further? So sin does not equal temptation. Why am I telling you this? Why am I stopping? Not only because Hebrews 4.15 makes the point. Jesus was tempted in every way such as we are, yet without sin. I'm telling us that because sometimes we think when we've been tempted, oh my word, I am such a scumbag, and since it's already marked against me, I might as well just, you know, as Luther says, sin boldly. No, there's a difference. Sin does not equal temptation. But here in verse 6, the wheels fall off. And it's just as 1 John 2.16 says, Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world, and it all comes to bear, and let me just say it, in one careless, proud moment. Everything changes. It's like going down the road and you're driving behind a, a, a dump truck and the next thing you know it this little pebble jumps up and it just bam it hits the windshield ever have that happen and now this is like this little bb bb divot right it in our windshield and then, then we know what can happen. Sometimes it just stays small, and sometimes these things spread, right? And the whole thing is gone. It's shattered. And what happens in 6 is this careless moment where Adam and Eve played the deadly charade of assuming being God in this world and saying, God, can we borrow the, the crown for just a moment that the windshield of the universe and every part of it physical part of the universe was affected by this defection. Every part of their human, our human existence, all the relationships with God and each other and the created world. And it all looked so good and it sounded so promising. It was wrapped in deception like a juicy nightcrawler right over the, over the hook and she just grabbed it 
and with the hook still in her mouth and the, and the fruit in her mouth, she's going, mm, Adam, this is really good. And, she, and the text doesn't say, and so she went looking for a man and Adam was building a tree house in the other side of the garden. And so she said, Adam, this is really awesome fruit. You ought to try some. Now, actually, this is the saddest part of her six. And she ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her. He hit the. He hit the mute button. At this point, he was to protect his wife through the truth of the word of God and bring that truth of God's word to bear. Sweetheart, remember what God said? Man, this, that, we can't do that. It's not going to be good for us. Remember what we have? Like, we have everything. There's only one thing we don't have. There's only one tree, so to speak, that's fenced off from us. We, we don't want to do this. Don't do this. But he's mute, pathetically passive. And man, that is a clarion call to us as we chase the deal and chase our career and compete in this world in whatever it is, academically, sports, you know, whatever it is. And we've got all this drive. Let me just say this. If you're married and you're leading a family, they long for your loving leadership. And don't for a moment go, well, it must be easy for you because you're a pastor. No, it's not. That mute button is just as easy for me to hit. To be a passive, pathetic pastor and shepherd in my own home. It's really, really important that we see what's going on here. And it's the heart of the sin. In fact, when the Bible describes what happened here in Genesis 3, it never talks about Eve. It talks about Adam's failing here. He is our representative. He's not like any man. He is the first man. And Jesus is going to be called the second Adam. There's all kinds of representatives, whether they're prophets or priests or judges. But he's a representative, and he acts for the whole of humanity. And his failure at this point that begins not when he ate the apple, when he said nothing, is at the heart of this. So what does Romans 5.12 say? Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, not one woman, one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people. So we're all cursed through Adam. It's, it's in a sense, it's now in the human condition it's permeated everyone that's ever lived since Adam and Eve. And not only do we inherit this guilt, but we've all sinned, the Bible says, right here. And so we're sinners too. Not just that we are related to a sinner, and we're not. It's Adam's sin. And so there's consequences. Verse 7. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Go back to 225 at the end of a very good beginning. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Their nakedness isn't a physical description. It is a heart description. They are innocent. They're spotless. There's nothing between them. Now we read in verse 7 that there's exposure. They actually do know 
about good and evil. And they know it in a way that they never imagined. And for the first time in their human existence, their innocent hearts has something pressing hard against it. And we all know it. It's guilt. So what do they do? I mean, they cover it up and hide, right? So they're suing these fig leaves together. And then verse 8, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the, tree of the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man, where are you? Now let's, let's not be confused here. God knows exactly where they are. When he says, where are you and what you've done, Adam and Eve, these, these are gracious calls of God as he pursues. They're running and hiding and he's moving towards them. And he's helping him come from under their hiding and their denying so they would be freed from this guilt that only he can deal with. Where are you? I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Now, we thought Adam kind of hit a low point in verse 6. Be ready. I mean, he plummets to new depths. Wouldn't you love to have this as your husband, ladies? The man said, Adam said, the woman! <laughs> he, so he throws her out of the, under the bus. Then he takes a shot at God. The woman that you gave me! Remember he said you got a suitable helper for me? It didn't work out so suitably well for me. The woman you gave me, she gave me some fruit. And then he kind of whispered something like, and I ate it. Did you hear that? And I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman, she's, she can play the blame game too. The serpent. The devil made me do it. Remember that line? The serpent deceived me and I ate. So there's exposure. Their eyes are opened. And it leads them to covering up their sin and hiding from a holy God. And, and that's what we do. That's our normal default is to cover, not to confess. The Bible says you confess it to God and each other. And that's how the guilt is removed. You don't cover it up. But our natural default is covering it up. So when I was a little guy, probably right around junior high, fifth grade, something like that, I got my first pair of golf clubs. Five bucks at the local garage sale. Great deal. So uh, Mr. Walters lived across the street. And we set up a nine-hole little wiffle ball course around the neighborhood. It was awesome. And I'm working on my swing down in my room in the basement. And I got my seven iron. You know, it's a really nice seven iron. And I do this swing. And the ceiling's kind of slow. So I got, you know, it's kind of low. So I got to make sure I don't hit the, the acoustic tile. And I get this swing. And I take a big divot right out of the carpet. So this is a problem. My mother is not going to like that I put a divot. But you know what? No problem. I got these little... I didn't just have clubs, but uh, I had these little putting cups so I could work on my putting game. And the putting cup covered the divot. It was awesome. So you didn't know. Three weeks later, I did it again over here. And I put another seven iron right through the carpet. Good thing I had two of those putting cups. So I put the second one over here. And it was all good until my mother dragged the vacuum cleaner to clean up my carpet, and she found it. And she said to me after school, Hey, what's going on with these holes in the carpet? And so I confessed. I came out. And I said, well, I was working on my golf swing, and I put the seven iron through it twice. 
So my mom's from Switzerland. She doesn't know what to call a golf club. She said to me, Mark, in a Swiss German accent, you get those sticks out of the house. <laughs> so, you know, we, we've got all different kinds of putting cups to put over the divots in our life. All kinds of lies and white lies and half-truths. Oh, we can rationalize and blame it on others and play the victim card. We're good at hiding out, isolating, hiding under a pile of religious talk and amped up spirituality so nobody gets close to the decay in our own hearts. Remember what Jesus called the religious leaders in his day? Whitewashed tombs. All the appearance of godliness, but it was all decay. It was, it was death inside. And so they're hiding, they're running for cover, and God's pursuing them with mercy, not just with justice. They're shifting the blame, throwing each other and God under the bus. And then comes these words of judgment, verses 14 and following. So what we have here is the, the, the world's order that was very good in the beginning got turned on its head. So at the beginning, right, when everything was good, God was king over all things because he created all things. And Adam and Eve, like us, are created in his image to rule over the whole world. So God, Adam and Eve, the world, to care for it, to protect it. Now the whole thing gets inverted through sin and rebellion and thinking maybe suppose for a day we could just wear the crown. And so now you have a serpent who's ruling over Adam and Eve and God is relegated to nowhere in the story. So now in this word of judgment, we have, we have actually mercy where God brings it back in its rightful order as he addresses first the one who mucked it all up, the serpent, Satan himself, then he addresses Eve, and then he addresses Adam. And so we read about verse 14. Here's what he says to the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are, are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. This is not describing the anatomy so much as a word picture for you will live humiliated. In abject humiliation. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And we're going to just unpack this whole thing and the other promises in the first 11 chapters and beginning of 12 next week. But let me just say this. As God is uttering these words of judgment, there is this first word of promise, which is the first word of promise of a Savior. Now, when the Israelites heard Moses read this, because remember, they didn't all get their own scroll. They would hear it. It wasn't like a little kid in Sunday school going, Ooh, teacher, I know this. I know who that descendant is, this coming offspring. It's Jesus, right? They didn't know that. They know all they know is there is a promise of a male descendant from Eve that's going to bring a blow to the head. That means a, a crushing, victorious, 
defeating, take him out forever, blow. And in the contest, and it talks about this ongoing strife between Jesus, this coming Savior, which nobody knows about at this point in the story, and the enemy himself and his minions, that he's going to have his, his heel bruised. No one in their wildest dreams are imagining this is all about Jesus. This is all about the crucifixion where he's both victorious and where his heel is knit. But that's what's going on in this word of judgment. And even in judgment, God's mercy and grace. Verse 16. And now there's a word of judgment to Eve. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And so there's two things. There's pile, pain and childbearing. So that doesn't happen every day. Uh, Adam's new reality is an everyday reality because the ground is cursed and his work is cursed and it's an everyday reality with the thorns and thistles. We'll see that. But, but Eve's is the very thing that God had blessed when he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill this earth with my image, with image bearers. Um, that, that's now cursed. That's, that's going to be pain and suffering. So I know some of you are cursing your man in that delivery room, weren't you? You were cursing him, and you had the wrong guy. It wasn't your man. It, was, it goes back to Adam and to Eve. And then it says that your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And you're going, well, that's kind of sweet. That's really good. Good job, Eve. And what do we know about this rule thing? We're a little nervous about that, but let me just clarify things. Go to chapter 4, verse 7. Turn the page. Now we'll, we'll understand how to understand this word desire. He's talking, God is talking to Cain, who's so jealously mad of his brother Abel that he's ready to kill him. God says this, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, here it is, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. Desire here is, it wants to control you. You see, what happens is, when you're married to a man, like Eve was, who throws you under the bus, you're a little nervous about following a man who doesn't have your best interests, and so your reaction is, I need to be in control of my life. And so there's this tussle, there's this tug of war going on, the battle of the sexes, the abuse of women right here, because the ruling is the counterpart, which is now not loving leadership, self-sacrificial leadership, but see, sin has had pride at the heart, and it's pride that says, not my fault, it's the woman you gave me, she gave it to me. And so there's this, there's this conflict. We go on chapter 3, verse 17, to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. So let's just stop. They're assuming the crown impacted the very world that we live in. It, it, it altered it. And that's why the Bible will talk about it just this poetic language of, of the, the creation groaning, 
groaning to be restored. And when the Bible talks about God restoring all things in heaven and on earth through Jesus for his glory and our good, all things is not just humans. It's all things. That's why the Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth. So we read on. By the sweat of your brow, verse 19, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so the consequences are, man, it's just, it's going to be hard. It's like hard labor, hard labor. He created you to be a farmer and a gardener, and it's just going to be all hard, all the time, every day. And not only that, death. I created you out of the dust of the earth, and you're heading back there. You're going to die. And so the easy question at this point is, but, but he doesn't die right here in the storyline. He keeps living. That's ah, because the Bible understands death in two parts. There's a spiritual death, which happened right here in verse 6. That was the, the shot of the rock into the windshield that we may not have noticed. Ah, something happened because sin separates. They were separated. He was separated from God, and he's going to die. In fact, one of the things we're going to do, if you haven't read it already in your Bible reading, you had if you're tracking with the Old Testament reading plan, is chapter 5 has this repeated line, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. What is it telling us? Is it now we live in a world where death, death is our reality. I mean, there's one guy, Enoch, who walks with God and is not. But everybody's dying. Adam dies. Eve's going to die. So then there's this beautiful ending of the story. In verses 21 through 24, we've got God's merciful provision of garments and of protection. And verse 20 was bugging me all week. So you got a verse that's bugging you, just stay at it because I didn't get it. Why is, why is verse 20 there? He's just talked about, you're going to die. You're from the dust. You're going back to the dust. And then what does it say in verse 20? Adam named his wife Eve. Do you have a footnote there? B, go down to B, and it says Eve probably means living. He named her living. God just talked about you're going to die. Everything and everyone is going to die. Why didn't he name her death or dying? Why does he name her living? And it says here in the text, because she would become the mother of all the living. It didn't make sense. Why is it here? Why is it here? Why is it here? Stay at it. There's gold. And I think what we have here is by God's grace, his eyes were opened, not just to the evil within, but to the reality of that he needs to live life under God, and he wants to hit a reset. Some of us need to hit a reset to stay. Yeah, I, 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 I've been living, I want to be in control because my life is so screwed up crazy and I got so many crazy people in my life that are hurting me, I have got to be in control and protect myself. And here's what we know. That's a deadly charade. 
the deadly shrine. And so I think he's hitting the reset. And the reason I think he names her Eve is because he understood, even though what he didn't understand all of it, he understood that there's a word, a promise in 315. There's a future and there's a hope. And so he doesn't name her dying or death, but living. And notice the mercy of God in the midst of all the muck of the rebellion and sin. God approaches them with merciful provision. First of all, the garments of skin. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So where do you think he got that? Was like, did, 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 he have a, did he have a closet with a bunch of mink furs and fox furs in there? And for the first time, they, they actually saw something that was dead. It was this beautiful animal that gave up its life. There's this hint of sacrifice right here. God, provision. There, there actually, guys, there's actually a theology about clothes right here. God's gracious provision for the harsh realities of the world and to cover up their shame, their own nakedness, which is so much more than a physical appearance thing. It was all about their hearts that had now been all of it tainted by sin. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good, like one of us, not one of us knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Is that, is that a cruel thing that God's doing? No. See, they, they had two trees in the middle of the garden, the tree of life, the tree of knowledge, good and evil. They couldn't eat from the tree of knowledge, good and evil, because what? When you eat it, you're going to die. God said you can have the tree of life, and when you eat from the tree of life, you're going to live forever. But now that that. that They've chosen to do life without God. Their sin is separated from God. And God says, I don't want you to go back and eat from that tree of life so that your perpetual, eternal existence leaves you in a place where you're forever separated, no longer being able to live with me. This is a gracious thing. And so the Lord banished him from the garden, verse 23, of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And he drove the man out. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, that's angels. In fact, Satan was one of those cherubim. And a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Gracious, gracious provision. The mercy of God in the midst of his judgment. God is good. He's good. So they're walking out of the garden, and things are crystal clear. Sin is a big thing. It's like a really big thing. We ought to catch up with it in 2017. Sin is a big thing. A careless, selfish, proud moment can just shatter our lives. It's a big thing that God would have to send his son to deal with it. They, they, they knew this so clear as they were walking out with this new guilt pressing in on their hearts that they knew their happiest times when, when they were living with God under his rule, trusting in his good provision. And they knew that they lost it all when for a moment they took on the crown to be like God. That was clear. Oh, oh. 
And what was clear is they longed to go back for what they were created for, but they couldn't get back. They couldn't get back. There's no way they could permeate the defenses of these cherubim and a flaming sword that is going, there's no way back. They needed a savior. So the text asks us some really important questions today. Who are you listening to? And, and do, do we know God's truth to be able to smell the counterfeit? Who are you listening to? God is saying to each of us in a gracious way, because he actually knows, where, where are you? Where are you? Where, where's the crown? Where, where, where? See, see, the crazy thing about the crown thing is there are actually places in our lives that are completely surrendered to Jesus' leadership, and then there's a bunch of other places where we go, but not that place, not that place. I mean, have you surrendered your life to Christ? Are there pockets of your life now that you have that you just say, no, don't, don't, come on. Don't make me open up that closet door. I don't, I don't want to go there. See, pride is at the heart of our sin. And I, I know this. Man, I'm good at seeing it in you. I cannot see it in myself as well. Pride is why we look down on people, think we're better. Pride is why we don't back down when we got into the brouhaha over the holidays, why we won't forgive, why we just can't say, I was wrong, I'm sorry. Pride is at the heart of why we do this in life. We're not generous, it's mine, it's mine. Pride is behind why it's everybody else's fault, never my own. Pride is behind our conviction that God is for sissies and the weak. I don't need God. Pride's behind all of our arrogance. And so Jesus, he, he, he want, he's calling us, where, where are you? And, and the Bible says this in Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. And, and so God says to us, don't keep covering it up. You will not flourish. You will not prosper. You cannot bear the weight of it. Confess it, renounce it, and find my merciful forgiveness. And so trust the one who laid aside the crown, even Jesus Christ, the Son of God, only to take up a crown of thorns. Trust the one who hung on that tree on Calvary's hill, the one who was cursed and cursed at to remove our curse, that you might live with God, the one who made you, loves you, the one who gives you everything good to enjoy. Let's pray. So, Lord, we confess that our proclivity is first and foremost to rule our lives, and we're really bad rulers, and we make a mess of it, and so we confess that. We hang on to you, Lord Jesus, remembering that you are faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness as we bring it out into the open. Would you give us courage to do that, to find freedom in your mercy and grace?
And would you strengthen us, some to trust you for the first time, and others to reset our faith in you. Lord, we want to be your faithful followers in the good and the bad, in the plenty and the scarce times to the very end for your honor and glory. Amen.